Today, I'm talking with Thomas Greco, who taught economics, finance, and statistics for 14 years at Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. And he's now an activist and a consultant working on alternatives to the current money system. He also wrote, he also wrote this book, um, The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. And um, I came across this book, uh, Tom, about the same time as I came across Matthew Slater's Credit Commons white paper and also um, Positive Money's videos about where money comes from. Uh, mm -hmm. Completely changed the way I saw the world and certainly how I uh, thought about money. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Dave. In uh, fact, that book that you have in your hand, by the way, is the UK edition. Yeah. Uh, the, the original edition uh, came out a few months prior to that one. And then uh, my publisher, Chelsea Green, sold the UK rights um, to a company in Scotland that uh, specializes in uh, change-oriented materials. So, uh, yeah, that, that book, I think, expresses pretty well my thoughts about what needs to happen. Uh, it includes a lot of history and theory about uh, uh, money and exchange and builds on that to lay out uh, uh, some prescriptions uh, for the future. Yeah, I, I, I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking with you now, Tom, but if I could only recommend one book in the world, this would be it. I think everybody should read it. Thank you. Um, so I'm very excited to talk to, talk to you. To you. You're, you're in Arizona. How's the weather there? Well, the weather is quite nice here. A lot of people come down from the north to spend the winter here. Uh, it does get cold here overnight. Uh, we have desert climate. Uh, typically, this time of year, we'll have high temperatures in Celsius degrees between 15 and 20. And overnight, it can get into single digits and sometimes below freezing. So we have to cover our garden plants to keep them from being killed by the frost. Right, okay. Yeah, we got frost here. It's cold here. Um, so there's a, there's a group of us getting together in London in March to talk about um, federating the non-extractive economy using a combination of mutual credit and Stafford Beer's Viable System Model, or VSM. I've interviewed, yes. I've interviewed Trevor Hilder about VSM, and today I'm interviewing you about mutual credit. Uh, and then next week I'm interviewing Dil Green about how to combine the two. Um, so I'll, st I'll start with some basic questions. Um, what's wrong with the current banking system? Well, that's <laughs> that, that's that's a big uh, that's a big uh, question, and uh, I've thoroughly covered that in my books. Uh, I wrote three previous books to the one that you showed, and uh, the very first book was called "Money and Debt: A Solution to the Global Crisis," and in that book, I laid out the results of my research into the current money and banking system and the dysfunctional aspects of it. Uh, I guess to sum it up, I'd say there, there are two basic things. Uh, one is the current money system monopolizes credit in the hands of uh, big multinational banks. And so getting access to credit uh, is difficult. The second thing is if you are able to get access to credit, it's at a high cost and you know, under onerous terms. So you go to the bank and you say, I, I need a a loan to finance working capital for my small business and the bank will say well I'm sorry we, we don't uh, you don't qualify unless you 
put up your house and your farm and your 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 firstborn child as collateral. So uh, if you do get a loan, it will be at high interest rates with onerous uh, repayment terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you do find yourself in trouble with uh, temporary liquidity problems, uh, they will pull the plug on you rather than uh, support you through the uh, through the crisis. And so there's a conflict of interest between the lender and the borrower. Uh, the other thing is that the current money system requires continual expansion of debt. Now, if you look at uh, the growth statistics for debt, both public and private, you'll see that uh, debt has been growing exponentially. And this is a simple mathematical fact because uh, compound interest is, a, is an exponential function and banks earn interest on the interest. So when they do make loans, we have this, uh, this problem about uh, continual compounding of interest and expansion of debt. Now, one thing that uh, very few people seem to realize, and I'm about the only person pointing this out, is that uh, uh, this debt has to grow continually, and the only way it can do that is by banks finding ways to create greater indebtedness, either by the private sector or by the public sector. Now, when the private sector is all loaned up, it can no longer take on any additional debt, uh, the government steps in as the borrower of last resort. Uh, that's a term that I've uh, coined, I think, and I don't hear anybody else talking about the borrower of last resort. Uh, that's why we see sovereign debt increasing uh, continually uh, around the world. And in the United States, we've seen it grow to enormous proportions. Since 2008, uh, the U.S. government debt was about $9 trillion. Today, it's approaching $22 trillion. That's in uh, about 10 years' time, more than doubled. And uh, so this cannot continue indefinitely. Uh, we had this debt crisis, this, this real estate bubble that built up in the early 2000s and then collapsed in 2008 and almost brought the whole global financial system down. Uh, we're building up to another one and it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. So we have, to find, uh, we have to find alternative ways of doing the exchange process without relying on banks to make loans at interest. You don't think the current system can be reformed? You think we need a... a no, no. The, the, the political system has been so thoroughly uh, captured by the financial, banking, uh, corporate, military, industrial interests, the, the global elite, if you will, that uh, political, the political approach to reform uh, is hopeless. There's, there's no way that that's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I tend to agree with you. Um, and so, um, just an overview: what's mutual credit? And I'll I'll put more links in the description to to, to more information. But just just from you, what's what what would you like to say about um, an overview of mutual credit? Okay. Well, let, let me give you a, a, an example. Let's suppose let's suppose uh, you buy something from me and pay me with a check drawn on your bank and I take that check to my bank which is a different bank 
and I deposit it in my account. Now, that check goes through a process. Uh, now your bank owes my bank because they have cashed your check for me or put that amount of money into my account. Now forget for a moment that we're using different currencies. Uh, so now your bank owes my bank because my bank has taken your obligation and uh, they're going to have to be satisfied by your bank. So this is just a, a matter of working out between themselves this process of claims and uh, what we have in every location. Uh, if you look back in time, we had something called the clearinghouse, but we still have clearinghouses. But to take it back in time when things were more localized, let's suppose we live in the same town, but we still have different banks and different accounts at different banks. So what happens with the banks in a location, they used to uh, collect the checks and at the end of the day, take them all down to a clearinghouse. So each bank would owe other banks. Uh, bank A, for example, would take in checks that were drawn on Bank B, and Bank B would take in checks that were drawn on Bank A. So they had claims against one another. But uh, the clearinghouse was simply to net out those claims. So Bank A might have claims of a million pounds against Bank B, and Bank B might have claims of a million point one pounds against the other bank. So the net is just uh, one-tenth of a million or a hundred thousand. So that's all they needed to transfer to settle their accounts. So if banks can do that process, uh, producers and sellers can do the same process. Uh, I call it direct credit clearing amongst traders. Uh, we don't need to use bank-created money uh, in order to pay one another. Uh, we can all form a circle of traders in which we simply keep a record of accounts. So I buy something from you, uh, my account is debited, your account is credited. So my account goes down, your account goes up. And if, if we're in a circle, let's say of several hundred or several thousand people, uh, each doing the same process, um, you can take the credits that I give you for the purchase and you can use those credits to get what you need from somebody else in the circle. And likewise, I can sell to someone else in the circle to clear my account. So it's just a process of bookkeeping. Uh, and in our process, instead of calling a negative balance alone, we simply uh, accept it as uh, a necessary feature of doing business. Now, businesses are in the habit of extending credit to one another on a bilateral basis. In a credit clearing exchange, we do this on a multilateral basis. So let's say we have established a credit clearing exchange and we have, oh, let's say 500 members in the exchange. Now we will look at the sales record and the financial condition uh, of each business in that exchange. And we will decide to allocate lines of credit to some of the members who have uh, uh, a good track record as far as having 
sales of things that people want. So those that are in general demand will qualify for line of credit, mm -hmm. which means that they can spend before they earn. In other words, they, they can have a negative balance on their account. Of course, we put limits on these balances, both negative and positive balances, so that things don't, don't ever get too far out of line. And is all this just theoretical or are there, are there any real examples out there? Oh, this has been happening for 50 years. There are commercial trade exchanges operating all over the world. And these commercial trade exchanges do basically what I described. They recruit hundreds or thousands of businesses to be members of their exchange. And then they do moneyless trading with one another. And the trade exchange operator simply keeps uh, the books. They keep a record of the debits and credits and they allocate the credit lines for those that qualify uh, to the extent that they are credit worthy. So basically, we no longer need money. We simply use the monetary unit as a measure of the amount of credit given. I was reading, I was reading um, something by Tim Jenkins, and he, he was saying that, uh, that really before money, um, local people would trade with each other using a sort of a, an informal mutual credit idea. They would just keep tallies in their head and, and, and they would just, they wouldn't barter because for barter, you'd need to find somebody who's got what you want and who wants what you got, you've got, which might not be easy. So villagers would just do a, uh, an informal mutual credit system in their head. So it's, it's a very old idea. Yeah. Credit, credit has always been the primary basis for exchange. And we, we've allowed the banks to capture our credit and lend it back to us at interest. But it's, it's our collective credit that supports every currency in the world. What do you think the potential is for um, mutual credit to contribute to the building of a new non-extractive economy? In, in well, fact, do you think that building a new economy is even possible with the current money system? Uh, no, the current money system is dysfunctional. It militates against uh, equity and social justice as well as peace. And so uh, we have to decentralize power. And the only way we can decentralize power is by decentralizing control of credit. And so what I envision is a uh, mutual credit network in which credit is locally controlled and allocated, but globally useful. So uh, if we go one step further, you know, I've described how a credit clearing system works uh, and we can take uh, hundreds of thousands of local credit clearing exchanges and network them together so that they do what the banks do. You know, they clear obligations amongst themselves behind the scenes so that I can take the credit that I have in my local exchange and use it anywhere in the world just as I take the credit that I have in my local credit union and use that anywhere in the world. So this, this networking of, of local exchanges to, to create a, a global system, that's credit commons, isn't it? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I talk about reclaiming the credit commons. The credit commons is the, uh, the collective credit that we all have and use. And, uh, when we talk about uh, the credit commons, we have to reclaim the credit commons from the banking interests. Uh, basically, we're reinventing money and banking, and we're doing it in a whole different way. 
by so, decentralizing control. Yeah. So money, money at the moment is a is a means of exchange, which is fine, but it's also a store of value, isn't it? And so no, some people not. are gonna some people are gonna try and accumulate it because money no, attracts we, we, we all. We all learn we all learn in school that money is three things: medium of exchange, a store of value, and a measure of value. But these things are contradictory. Uh, if you want to have something as a medium of exchange, it should be spent. If you want it to be a store of value, it should be held. And when you look at the way we do things, we actually do not use money as a store of value. That's, that's an incidental function uh, that it has uh, as it performs its function as an exchange uh, medium. Uh, when we talk about people having a lot of money, chances are they don't have very much money at all. It's like saying they have lots of uh, credits in their checking account. Well, they don't. You typically take uh, your exchange media and you use it to buy a claim, a long-term claim or a share of stock or something else in your investment portfolio. So when we talk about somebody having a lot of money, we mean they have a lot of wealth. And that wealth is typically in the form of stocks, bonds, real estate, collectibles, not in the form of money. Yeah. And when, when, uh, when wealth concentrates like that in very few hands, it always sort of overflows into the governance system. It overflows into politics and corrupts it. Yeah, um, of course. Would you say that really we, we can't really have true democracy when wealth is concentrated too much. Absolutely, and Judge Brandeis said something to that effect a long time ago. Who said, who said that, sorry? Disparities of wealth. Brandeis, he was, he was a noted uh, judge in the United States. Uh, he said, you can't have large disparities of wealth and also have uh, a democracy. Right. They are antithetical to one another. So, with mutual credit, we can get what we need without actually having money. So that, that means it has huge implications for fighting poverty, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. And uh, as far as the, uh, the measure of value, the, the third function that we need, uh, this should be done with an independent uh, commodity-based measure. And this is the way it used to be. When the United States was founded, the US dollar was defined in terms of silver. It was a specified weight of silver. And then later on, it was defined in terms of gold. So if we had uh, a measure of value that was independent of the currency, uh, <clears throat> then we would have everything we need uh, to rebuild the exchange system in a more equitable way. Now, <clears throat> in my own work, I have uh, laid out a market basket of commodities as uh, the most uh, promising measure of value. So if we take a, a market basket of basic commodities and define our unit of account based on those commodities, uh, then we have an independent measure uh, to keep our records and uh, measure our, our credits with. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, an economy based on mutual credit seems to me like it would be a much freer market than what we've got now, or that actually that any neoliberal could dream of. So um, what we have now seems to be a corporate welfare state rather than a free market. 
So do you, do you think mutual credit is something that could appeal to the right? Well, sure. Yeah, the right, uh, there, there are libertarian elements on the right that have been proponents of uh, choice in currency. Uh, they want government currency to have to compete with private currencies uh, that are, are better managed. And, uh, you know, I, I, in 1989, I went to a conference in Washington, D.C. that was organized by the Cato Institute. And the subject of that uh, conference was choice in currency. And there were a number of notable mainstream economists who were speaking uh, in favor of choice in currency. And the Cato, so Institute, the Cato, Institute, uh, the Cato Institute are a right-wing think tank, aren't they? Uh, it's become pretty right-wing. Yeah, it used to be more libertarian, but uh, I think it still is somewhat libertarian, but it, it's shifted a lot to the right. And um, yeah, so it's um, it's really I'm really happy to hear you say that because I've often thought that mutual credit could be like a bridge between left and right instead of left and right just fighting each other pointlessly and the the entire system just trundling on regardless. Yeah, I, I it, it it definitely is a bridge because uh, we're not getting into ideological arguments which yeah. go nowhere. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm not concerned about ideology I'm concerned about practicality what works what's yeah. going to make things better and uh, as I said before I don't think we can reform the existing system so it means we have to reinvent it rebuild it from the bottom up it's, I'm very excited to hear you say that because I just I don't want to get into a battle with the right and I don't think there's any need to no there isn't so mutual credit is similar similar to the LETS idea, the local exchange trading system idea, isn't it? I mean, it's um, those schemes yeah. seem to they seem to have faded away. I mean, what's the difference between mutual credit and LETS? Well, LETS uses the mutual credit clearing process, but uh, the problem with LETS, well, there were several problems. Uh, it was really a, a brilliant uh, stroke of genius that Michael Linton had in coming up with LETS. Uh, rediscovering the credit clearing process, which, as we said, was nothing new. And uh, it spread pretty rapidly around the world, and notably in the UK. Uh, the problem is that LETS was not business-based. LETS was grassroots, and it was on the fringe. And uh, it wasn't able to attract uh, very many business members. So when it did attract business members, uh, uh, it was the businesses that were popular with everybody and they were accumulating lots of credits uh, and finding difficult uh, finding it difficult to spend those credits so you know i say you ought to allocate credit lines to the most productive and popular members mm. <clears throat> the ones that have goods and services that everybody wants. And that's the way you prevent this pooling of credits in the hands of a few members. Mm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the members were basically doing lets as a sideline. And uh, they might offer things like massage or guitar lessons or things that were not particularly important to people's lives. Uh, they were luxuries rather than necessities. 
And they might have uh, got done for free anyway. What's that? They might have been done for free otherwise anyway. Uh, many of them, yes. But uh, the, the difference with the commercial trade exchanges, uh, they were organized uh, for businesses. Uh, and businesses are there every day, ready, willing, and able to sell you what you want. Mm. So this makes a huge difference. But even the commercial trade exchanges have some, some notable flaws or dysfunctions, and I write about those in the book that you showed, The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. <clears throat> and, just, and just briefly, what are those flaws? Um, well, amongst those are the uh, inadequate allocation of credit lines. Um, you have to have uh, you have to have a proper algorithm for allocating lines of credit to the members. That is, who should be allowed to purchase before they sell? To what extent should their credit uh, should their uh, should their account be allowed to go into debit or the negative side? And a lot of trade exchanges. Uh, they will be overly generous just to recruit a member into the exchange. Uh, come into our exchange and we'll give you a credit line equivalent to six months of your sales. Well, that's excessive. And so you end up getting into trouble with uh, members having excessive debit balances. And a lot of exchanges, <clears throat> they trade on their own account and they will go deeply into debit uh, on their own account uh, beyond anything that's reasonable. Uh, there's also lack of transparency. Most trade exchanges are operated as for-profit businesses and uh, they don't make their numbers public. Uh, so these are some of the, the primary problems with uh, commercial credit clearing at the moment. So and finally, uh, failure to network these exchanges together to create the kind of uh, global utility that I spoke about earlier. Why do you think they don't want to do that? Wouldn't that um, increase their profits? Uh, they are stuck on a plateau, a suboptimal plateau. Uh, these are proprietorships mainly, and uh, the, the operators are satisfied with the small amount of profit they're making and they don't want to risk uh, revealing their client base or having their members be able to go outside uh, to access uh, goods and services elsewhere. So there's, uh, there's sort of a, uh, a false idea that they have to keep everything local. Uh, we want to keep control local, but we want to make uh, the credit globally useful. Yeah, so I mean, we, there is a process that we need to go through in order to bridge that gap. Yeah, we're coming at it from a completely the opposite direction. We want to build a cooperative. We want to build a cooperative global credit commons. Um, so yeah, we're not looking at it from the same way at all. I mean, if if you had the how do we achieve this global credit commons? If you had the power, what would you do? How do we go about it? Well, we have to build one node that is optimized. And 
I'm hoping that the uh, UK co-op mutual credit uh, exchange uh, will be that node <clears throat> and uh, follow the prescriptions that I've laid out in my book and avoid the problems that I just mentioned uh, that most uh, commercial trade exchanges uh, have been beset with. So <clears throat> once we have an optimal uh, node, so to speak, uh, and we can demonstrate the effectiveness and the efficiency uh, of that node, uh, then others will want to replicate it. And then we can network together those, uh, those replicated nodes into a, a broader network to enable uh, trading over a wider area. And uh, if we do this right, this will proliferate quickly and build up very rapidly. Uh, we will have the virtuous circle that networks uh, desire to create. We're discussing at the moment whether to um, start at the UK level or whether to start smaller nodes and then network them up to the, to the UK level or, or maybe a bit of both. Uh, we, we're not sure at the moment. Yeah, I think we have to map the territory, um, see uh, who is offering what for sale, uh, how wide an area we need to encompass to get a broad enough selection of goods and services to make the exchange useful. And uh, if you make it too small, you have too narrow uh, a range of goods and services. Uh, if you make it too large, it becomes difficult to uh, to manage. So the, the nodes, we, we need to discover by trial and error the optimal size for a node. And this will vary from one place to another, depending on the industries and the businesses that are in that area. And it doesn't need to be necessarily geographically based. You know, it could be uh, community of interest that form a node as well as uh, geographic communities that form a node. Mm -hmm. I'll and I often think that it might be best to start with groups that already know each other and have some commonality, like, uh, for example, religious groups or social organizations. Yeah, of course, the, the commonality we're looking at is, um, is the cooperative sector. Right, right. Um, I'll put some more information in the description below about the UK Mutual Credit Network, and we're looking for expressions of interest now from small businesses. Um, so we'd be very pleased to hear from you. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's important that we uh, we take in the small and medium-sized enterprises as well as the cooperative businesses. Uh, we might have a short list of values and ideals that we subscribe to you know, uh, that we would like people to, uh, to endorse uh, as they become members. Mm -hmm. So would, would you like to see other forms of money too? Um, and what kinds? And, um, and how, do, how do we get states to accept mutual credit for taxes, for example? Well, uh, I think there, there is the possibility at municipal level <clears throat> and maybe even at the state level uh, for credit clearing credits uh, and private currencies to become acceptable and payment 
extra fees and and, uh, and taxes, but uh, we don't need to go there initially. Uh, initially, if we can get the business community to start trading amongst themselves without money, uh, this will basically put pressure on municipalities uh, to accept those credits as well. Um, but as far as uh, your, your earlier question about private currencies, yes, I would like to see more private currencies uh, that will demonstrate that uh, government-issued money or central bank-issued money uh, is not the only viable currency. In fact, uh, a private currency can be more, um, more substantial, more robust, more valued uh, than the government currency it, because it has to stand on its own merits. It will not have the protection of uh, uh, legal tender status that's established by law for conventional currencies. Mm -hmm. So for example, you could think of uh, frequent flyer miles being issued by the airlines. If these were made easily transferable uh, from person to person, they could serve as a private currency. And if they were issued uh, properly, uh, they might prove to be more reliable than even the conventional currencies like pounds and dollars and, and euros. <clears throat> Talking about the UK Mutual Credit Network again, um, what's changed since you wrote your book, The End of Money, um, which was 10 years ago? Do you think we've got a better chance of achieving it now? Yeah, I think uh, with the financial meltdown and uh, uh, the after effects of that, and also with, uh, with people becoming better informed about alternative exchange, mainly through Bitcoin and, and other uh, non-governmental uh, currencies, uh, people have begun to pay more attention. Now, <clears throat> talking about Bitcoin and blockchain, uh, this has opened people's minds to other possibilities besides uh, conventional money but I don't see Bitcoin as a solution in the long term uh, the blockchain technology might have a role to play in the future of the exchange process but Bitcoin is basically a virtual commodity it uh, has many of the characteristics of gold and that is well brought out in uh, Nathaniel Popper's book uh, uh, what is it called uh, virtual gold or, yeah, I think it's called virtual gold. Um, so it has the same properties as any commodity, although it doesn't exist in physical form. It's simply uh, numbers on a computer somewhere. It uses an awful lot of electricity as well, doesn't it? Well, yeah, that's, that's one of the negative features of it. It takes a lot of energy to produce it. And, uh, you know, like, like gold, uh, it has very little use value and very little exchange value. Most of the gold is held in vaults somewhere. So we dig it out of the ground and then we put it in another hole in the ground called the vault. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, likewise with, uh, with Bitcoin, it takes a lot of energy to produce it and it just sits there. Most people use Bitcoin as a uh, 
as speculative medium or as a, uh, a hedge against inflation of conventional currencies. So it serves better the, uh, the storage of value function. Very little Bitcoin is being used for payments. Yeah. And that, that's the case with any commodity money. Uh, most of the payments are done with credit. Mm -hmm. I think one, one of the reasons I'm interested in mutual credit as well is in case of societal collapse, uh, when money just doesn't get you anything anymore, um, you know, people can, can fall back on mutual credit locally and still trade and still uh, produce goods and services and still, you know, survive. Right. And actually, even if the electricity goes down, mutual mutual credit can be done with a, with pen and paper. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, we have precedent for this. Uh, during the Great Depression, the problem was not uh, that we didn't have labor available. It wasn't that we didn't have the machines and the factories and the raw materials available. The problem was the financial system. There was a insufficient supply of money in circulation. And that's what put the monkey wrench into the econ economic works. And so people responded with uh, lots of alternative exchange media called Scrip. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of Scrip issues that were put into circulation during that time to provide some liquidity and make it possible for people to exchange goods and services, even though there wasn't enough money circulating in the economy. Uh, in my uh, earlier books, I wrote about uh, one example. There was a, a chain of stores in the uh, western New York State area that issued what they called uh, merchandise bonds. Uh, it was basically a script that they used to pay their employees and their suppliers that would then be redeemed by them for merchandise bought from their stores. So they basically created their own money uh, which they used to pay their suppliers and, and employees and then accepted it back when they sold uh, their own goods and services. So private currency is an entirely viable approach to the exchange problem if you have it being issued by a reliable and solvent issuer who has something to offer that people want. The same thing happened in Argentina, didn't it, at the end of the 20th century when their economy collapsed? There was a big move to mutual credit, wasn't there? Yeah, there was uh, during the 1990s uh, when the Argentine government uh, was pursuing a, a policy of dollar parity. They, they bought into the Washington consensus that they ought to uh, privatize all their government-owned resources and uh, keep their... Keep their uh, pesos at parity with the dollar. I was there in 2001, and uh, this was at the height of the social currency movement. Uh, you could go to the ATM, uh, put in your card, and you could choose whether you wanted to draw pesos or dollars. And basically, I was indifferent because the peso was trading one-to-one -one with the dollar at that time. But of course, uh, after the government sold off all their assets to northern companies, which then raised prices and, and milked the economy and sent their, uh, sent their gains back home by turning in their pesos for dollars one-to-one, -one. Uh, then the Argentine government could no longer sustain uh, parity with the dollar, and the peso declined by two-thirds. 
So you know, this is this is uh, the game that's been played over and over again. Uh, they get people and companies and governments drawn into the debt trap, and uh, then they end up in debt bondage. Yeah. So the Argentines did come up with their own system of uh, treque, they called it, treque exchanges. These were trading clubs that had hundreds of members uh, trading every day goods and services that they were able to provide. But it was a, it was a huge percentage of the Argentine economy at one point, wasn't it? It definitely was, and it was a lifeboat for many people. Uh, and when uh, when the peso collapsed and the uh, uh, the economy went into uh, uh, freeze up again, uh, the network, the trading network, also collapsed because you had a lot of fraud and impropriety going on. A lot of these com a lot of these clubs were clubs in name only. They would issue their own credito notes or uh, credit notes and go shopping at the trading clubs and with no intention of ever reciprocating. Mm -hmm. So basically we're talking about reciprocal exchange. We need to create mechanisms for reciprocal exchange in this economic game of, of give and take. And we have to do it with trusted players, don't we? Well, yeah, trust is always an essential feature <clears throat> in, in any trade system. You, mm -hmm. you cannot eliminate trust. I mean, even if we're talking about blockchain and Bitcoin, uh, you have to trust the process and the platform and the, uh, and the exchange, if not the currency itself. So the, the, current economic, um, the, the current economic system centralizes power, which is then it was bought or seized. With capitalism, it's been bought, and with the Soviet Union, it was seized, and so on. Can an economy based on mutual credit, uh, a credit commons, keep power decentralized? Well, if people take responsibility, you know, there are two sides of the coin. Freedom and responsibility go together. You can't have one without the other. And, and do you think if we start to have success, do, do you think there'll be a fight back by banks and the, the extractive sector? No doubt, uh, that's historically been the case. So it means we have to uh, we have to assert we have to assert <clears throat> our money power, which is our, our power to allocate credit to one another, and uh, we have to do it quickly. Yeah, I think um, having having been working in the environment sector for twenty five years, and you know, from an environmental perspective, things don't look very good. I don't. I don't think most people understand the full implications of climate change and biodiversity loss, and and why should they really? I, I, I it's, it's true, and uh, as long as we have a political situation where things are controlled by a small elite group uh, globally, uh, we're going to have that uh, that continue. Uh, you know, we've had this environmental environmental movement for more than fifty years. And little or no headway has been made. Uh, we've been able to clean up certain areas, but you know, in the process, we have the whole planet at risk with global warming and, and global pollution, uh, the oceans being acidified, garbage collecting massive uh, floats in the middle of the ocean, and uh, it's uh, it's not going to stop until we put an end to this 
debt-based, uh, interest-based money system, which is driving this whole thing. You know, the compound interest formula is driving us to destruction. Yeah, I, um, I've been studying biodiversity loss and we're, we're losing species at a, a rate thousands of times faster than the natural rate, the pre-human rate. Right. And I think if we're gonna, if we're gonna avoid ecological meltdown and either extinction or some vision of hell for humans, then we have to stabilize the global economy. And I, I, that, I don't think that's possible with the current money system. No, can, a, can an economy with a mutual credit exchange system be stabilized? Yes, I definitely believe it can. But it also means decentralizing power, both political and economic power. Which, which mutual credit will do as well, and it will start to decentralize economic power for sure. It puts us on a path in the right direction. So um, where can people keep up to speed on what you're, on what you're up to? Um, my primary website is beyondmoney.net. Um, that's my active site. It has a, a wealth of information, many important links. I have a secondary site called reinventingmoney.com. Uh, that's an archival site which contains uh, a lot of monetary theory sources, <clears throat> some case studies, and uh, other important documents. And uh, you can go to beyondmoney.net. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, on Twitter. Thomas H. Greco Jr. is my name. And uh, that's the way you can keep informed and access the materials that I've collected over more than 30 years in this. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've been, um, I've been listening to some of your previous interviews which are on there. So it's uh, very interesting. Um, so this meeting that we're having in March we've got I mean we've got key people in cooperative housing employment transport IT land and we've got key, key people in networks the solidarity economy association permaculture association we've got someone building a platform alternative to uber and someone working on a cooperative train line um, and um, when it comes to mutual credit this vision of trying to get mutual credit seen as the natural exchange mechanism of the of the non-extractive sector, what what would be your advice to that to that group of people? What would you like to say to them if you were there? Well, I would I would like to say to them that they need to uh, study up on the exchange process, look at uh, the history and the current activity in private currency and mutual credit clearing, and uh, make sure they understand that because that's the fundamental approach that needs to be taken in order to make things better. And uh, I, I wish you all success with that meeting, and I'm looking forward to coming over later in the year. Yeah, it'd be lovely to see you, Tom. Um, all right, then, Tom, so I'd, I'd thank you very, very much for that. And uh, I think we'll wind up there. Okay, well, you're most welcome, Dave, and best of luck to you. Thank you. It was very nice talking to you, Tom. Likewise. And I'll, uh, I'll speak to you soon on, soon on email. Okay. Bye-bye, Tom. Bye-bye.